Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Weekly, the podcast of the Journal of Middle Eastern Politics and Policy at Harvard. This week, Nick Norberg, Thea Y, Mohamed Saleh, and myself, Blair Big, will be discussing the latest updates in the corruption scandal facing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Next, we'll discuss several updates from Syria, including the Turkish military's attack of a Syrian regime convoy in Afrin, as well as an underreported story that U.S. strikes killed hundreds of Russian mercenaries in Syria. Note that you can find links to articles with further information on these stories on our website if you want to learn more. Last week, Israeli police recommended bringing corruption charges against Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And this was after a month-long investigation into the nature of his relationship with various media companies in Israel, especially the largest telecommunications company, Bezek, in which he promised various favors in exchange for favorable coverage from these media companies. And this has kind of been a culmination of many different corruption charges that have been leveled against him since, I think, as far back as 1996. And yeah, so basically the Israeli police found that they had enough evidence to recommend charges against him. So Theo has a little bit more information on some of the history of these corruption charges. Yes, yeah, so as, as you said, it's the these corruption scandals has kind of it has a long history. It started in the late 90s where there was uh, ambiguity over whether he'd interfered with the appointment of an, an attorney general in 1997. There was also talk about uh, expenses scandals in regards to refurbishment on his house. His wife was also brought into the scandal too. And in regards to corruption as well, this isn't something that's particularly new to Israel or even new to Israeli prime ministers or presidents. Yitzhak Rabin was um, brought under uh, intense scrutiny when, uh, as ambassador, he uh, had opened a savings account in the United States, which at the time was illegal for any Israeli MPs. He actually um, wasn't prosecuted for that. Uh, His wife wasn't either, but was fined $27,000. And then reaching through that with other prime ministers, Ehud Barak, Ariel Sharon, all have had bribery charges levelled against them, Ehud, uh, Ehud Olmert as well, but it seems that they, these high-profile cases have usually been dropped as a, um, on the grounds of lack of evidence. Um, Lower-level Israeli MKs have been prosecuted, uh, especially in 2006 was a particularly big year for corruption charges, where a, a, a group of less senior Israeli officials were actually tried and charged uh, for corruption. Um, But in regards to Prime Minister Netanyahu, it seems, or at least in my mind, seems relatively unlikely that there'll be, these charges will kind of um, develop into anything kind of substantial or concrete. Prime Ministers in many countries, not just Israel, have a a fine ability to avoid um, charges like bribery. Um, and usually end up getting away with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like part of the reason that this has gotten so much traction lately is obviously from the uh, police recommendation, uh, the recommended indictment, but it's also been something that's gained a lot of traction generally among uh, Israeli society. There was a recording that surfaced of a conversation between Netanyahu's son and the son of a uh, technology company owner who just received a large contract from the Israeli government. So this recording basically was uh, on the way to a strip club and, uh, you know, nothing that whose son was overheard asking the other young man there to pay for entertainment for himself, for the both of them, and basically told him, oh, you should do this because, you know, my dad uh, got you that contract. It should be noted that this is something 
that uh, Netanyahu denies. The technology company also categorically denies. But there's a little bit more evidence to this. It's something that's kind of been in the public eye, and it's something that's you know received a fair amount of treatment in the Israeli press as well as the legal community. I definitely agree with your assessment, though, that there's been. It's hard to tell whether or not this will actually have any lasting effect on Netanyahu's political career, especially since he's been able to survive so many crises in the past that would have done in most political careers. He seems to have been able to pull through time and again. And since corruption is something that stretches so far back in Israeli politics, it's really hard to tell whether or not this is something that, you know, voters will actually hold the, you know, Netanyahu and his party accountable for, or if this is something that people are just so used to that it will, you know, be something that kind of dies with time. So it seems like a lot of politicians are really watching the polls very closely and, you know, kind of waiting on whether or not they're going to take a hard stance on this one way or another, whether or not they're going to abandon Netanyahu or stand by him, depending on how voter behavior looks. Another important thing to consider as well is that in regards to charges and then um, whether those are followed through um, in the case of sitting members of parliament, um, it seems in the in the two of the most high-profile cases of presidents and prime ministers being committed of crimes, this has always happened after their term has finished. So uh, Ehud uh, Olmert, for example, when um, he was a cabinet minister in 2006, this was when his bribery charges were brought up against him. It took many more years, and it was only in 2015 when the actual... He was, there was a trial and he was sentenced um, to a number of years in prison. I think he only served 18 months for that. So it could be the case in, with, uh, with Netanyahu is that this could be quite a long, drawn-out process. It would seem unlikely that they would convict a sitting prime minister. And the other example of presidents who have been convicted of crimes is Moshe Kastav, who was actually convicted for rape. And again, this was after he was president. Um, allegations were levelled. I think whilst he was president, but uh, again, it took a matter of time for him to actually be convicted for those charges. And it, it wasn't a case of a prime minister or a president being removed from power. It was something that happened after they'd retired. Yeah. Your point, both of your points are well taken that the, these corruption charges have been leveled against previous leaders and everyone's weathered it so far, and that also Netanyahu has had an incredibly resilient political career. But I actually disagree that this won't impact the rest of his time as prime minister. I think there's been increasing opposition raised against him for the past several years. And I think that what differentiates this particular corruption case from some of the past ones is that the Israeli police have just done a much more thorough job this time of finding evidence um, and, and last week, even, you know, they arrested Shlomo Filber, who is the director general of Bezek, the telecommunications company. Um, and he's had a friendly relationship with Netanyahu, but has agreed to serve as a state witness against him. And I, I feel like they're just doing a much more thorough job of kind of also arresting and accusing the various people who've been tied in with Netanyahu. And that this could end up, we could end up kind of seeing a reversal in this long-standing stream of resiliency that Netanyahu has had in, in leadership as well as previous uh, Israeli prime ministers. And I think that's really important uh, and something that we should remember as well is that the next Israeli election is in 2019. So even if they can't convict him of these certain crimes, Israelis can use the ballot box to remove him from power if there is this general consensus that uh, he is a corrupt uh, official or, or whatever. I wonder to what extent does Netanyahu, as well as other Israeli officials, use or leverage perceived foreign threats as a mask for their domestic corruption scandals? To what extent do you think 
Netanyahu will use perceived threats from the Sinai, from, the, from occupied Palestine, from Lebanon, from Syria, in order to overshadow all of these scandals, especially in, for an upcoming election. I mean, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm not 100% or I, to my knowledge that this hasn't been a kind of tactic that has been used by him. But what has been used by Netanyahu in the build up to this is similar to what President Trump has used is this idea of fake news. Mm. Um, and that's something that I think has really affected uh, the way that he's been able to deal with this is that he can mobilize media, probably not in the same way that President Trump can, but... There, he can definitely manipulate it in a certain way where there is this kind of foreign entity. It doesn't necessarily have to be a Palestinian or, um, or one from kind of one of its neighbours, but it, there can still be this charge of uh, fake news or foreign actors trying to manipulate the news to kind of get rid of him. I, I would say that that's a, that's a, seems like a pretty common political tactic in general among leaders is just to kind of deflect in current or internal problems by shifting the blame a little bit. I think uh, Israel has really tried to position itself as a very unique example of a functioning democracy in the Middle East. And I think a lot of these, you know, the, the history of corruption scan, or charges against its leaders and particularly against Netanyahu kind of does a lot to tarnish that image. And so I think they're very... Um, I think Netanyahu is very careful to conserve that image and to do a lot of policing around his image and around Israel's image. Um, and that, you know, really relates to your question about um, what all he will do to deflect, because I think that this kind of erodes away at the image of a completely functioning democracy. In Syria this week, there have been obviously a lot of large developments, but two of the ones that we think have been the most salient are uh, this introduction of pro-Assad forces into the conflict between Turkey and Kurdish forces in northern Syria, and airstrike that uh, reporting has now indicated was carried out by American forces on potentially Russian troops in Syria, both of which be a pretty huge escalation to the conflict. So we'll start with the Kurdish issue in northern Syria and move on to the second story. In the, uh, the ongoing Turkish operation in Afrin, Turkey's continued to press forward on their goals as usual, made pretty significant progress towards Afrin. They've continued to pace with uh, their bombing campaign and uh, with ground operations in northern Syria. They were actually accused of employing chemical weapons this past week in Syria, which they've categorically denied both by the foreign ministry and uh, Erdogan himself has personally denied this, despite the accusations of monitoring groups. However, at the beginning of the week, um, a Kurdish militia who is loyal to uh, President Bashar al-Assad, president in Syria and Damascus, has entered Afrin uh, on the side of the Kurdish fighters against the Turkish uh, incursion forces, leading Turkey basically to categorically denounce these forces. Uh, Turkey directly threatened Assad by basically saying that any forces that are loyal to Assad who support Kurdish fighters in Syria will be treated indiscriminately. Turkey will treat them as though they're members of the YPG or members of ISIS, and will simply kill them. Turkey has, however, said that if Assad is sending these forces to uh, fight against the YPG, then Turkey welcomes his assistance and <laughs> is uh, the biggest advocate for Syrian territorial integrity is out there. It says that uh, Turkey will absolutely defend Assad's right to uh, defend Syria's territorial integrity. So uh, the concern over this issue basically is that this could escalate into a direct conflict between Turkey and Syria uh, and the Syrian government in Damascus. 
which has been somewhat of a concern since the outbreak of the civil war in Syria. Uh, Assad and Erdogan were formerly very close political allies, had a falling out around the start of the Syrian civil war after uh, Erdogan basically attempted to bring uh, Assad to the table uh, and uh, Assad refused basically to negotiate with opposition groups. Ever since, Erdogan uh, and Turkey have been vociferous opponents of the Syrian regime's agenda. And uh, so any sort of an escalation of the conflict between Ankara and Damascus is something that is very worrying and could, could potentially exacerbate the already horrifying Syrian conflict, uh, potentially drag it out over the long term. How does the U.S. factor into this? Because um, I, I know that it was partially the U.S. announcement of a border patrol that led to the invasion of Afrin in the first place. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about how their position on the continuing tension between Assad and Erdogan um, has progressed? Yeah, sure, absolutely. From my understanding, uh, the Pentagon has no interest in seeing uh, an outright conflict between Turkey and the Syrian government. This would actually, this would be something that I think the Pentagon would probably uh, oppose aggressively to the best of their ability. However, because of uh, the indecision in the Trump administration's policy towards Syria, the U.S. has been finding it very hard to find leverage over Turkey in this. That's indicated by Turkey's decision to uh, carry out this operation in the first place, the U.S.'s inability to dissuade them. Uh, from this path. Um, Tillerson was actually, uh, Secretary Tillerson, U.S. Secretary of State, was actually in Turkey over the last week, basically trying to bring U.S.-Turkey relations back from the breaking point. Erdogan and uh, the Turkish Foreign Ministry basically directly threatened to cut relations with the U.S. and to potentially exit NATO. The U.S. did not cooperate with Turkey on this operation, and the U.S. has since fallen in line. So I think Turkey feels that it can push the envelope fairly far here, and that the U.S., doesn't really have any way to meaningfully stop them from doing that. The U.S. also obviously is not publicly negotiating with Assad, but uh, there one can assume that uh, Assad will attempt to bring Russia to bear on any policy that Damascus sets. And I think that both the U.S. and Russia would like to see this conflict de-escalate rather than continue to escalate. It is worth noting as well that uh, Assad, the, these these militia forces that are theoretically loyal to Assad, are by no means numerous enough to make a huge difference in the conflict. There's only a couple hundred of them, and which may sound like a lot, but that's really not anything to counter the tens of thousands of troops that Turkey is throwing at this. So it's it seems like a drop in the bucket. If Assad decides to pursue this more sternly, he's going to need Russian support. Absolutely. So yeah, I guess it'll remain, remains to be seen if this is something that Russia wants to do. It should be noted also that Russia is trying to court Turkey's favor at every corner, uh, try and pull Turkey further from the U.S. orbit. So it's it's a it's a policy that you know Russia would rather, I think Russia would rather try and avoid. And um, continuing on this theme of de-escalation, how do the recent events um, concerning the killing of several hundred Russian military contractors play into this? This story has been really really interesting to follow. So this uh, for for those who haven't been following this story, this is basically referring to an airstrike that was conducted by U.S. forces on February 7th during a battle between U.S.-trained forces and pro-Assad forces in Deir ez-Zor in Syria. It is since, uh, rep- some reporting is since uh, indicated specifically in Bloomberg, there's a great article about this in Bloomberg, that basically alleges that in this airstrike, uh, over 100 Russian military contractors were killed and two to 300 uh, were injured. Reuters has since 
performed uh, their own reporting on this and confirmed that these numbers are probably accurate. It should be noted that both the Pentagon and the Russian Foreign Ministry deny that uh, this that the death tolls are even remotely this high. The Pentagon uh, denies that there were any Russians uh, or denies knowledge of any Russian citizens who were in the group targeted uh, by these airstrikes. And the Russian Foreign Ministry, uh, specifically Foreign Minister Lavrov, has directly labeled this uh, story fake news and has basically said that uh, no one should pass judgment on this until an investigation is conducted. It's interesting because these are, you know, if, if these numbers are true or correct, these are not regular Russian, you know, military service members. Um, so these are not regular soldiers. Um, they're, you know, private individuals who are working for a company that has been contracted in to do work in Syria. That makes this situation a little bit of a gray area for all the governments involved. It means that Russia doesn't necessarily have the same level of responsibility to respond to to this strike in the same way that they would if this were a direct attack on a Russian military installation, for example. But it, it certainly, if these numbers do turn out to be true, it's certainly something that will that will make this more difficult to de-escalate. I think it's something that both the U.S. government and the Russian government uh, probably hope is not accurate. But uh, yeah, it definitely speaks to the level of Russian involvement here. And it also speaks to the level of Russian concern about perception at home of having large numbers of active duty Russian troops on the ground in Syria. And part of the way that Russia can try and reduce its active duty, its, its actual official military footprint in Syria is to bring in private contractors. Um, so if they need to extend their presence, they need more people, but they don't necessarily want to have, you know, active duty soldiers, you know, who could potentially get killed and have political repercussions back home. You can hire a contracting company to come in and do it for you. I wonder where they w- learned that one from. Me too. Those British person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, I think we'll end here. Thank you all for listening and you'll hear from us again in a few weeks.